This episode of African Tech Conversations is brought to you by iAfrican.com, Africa's most vibrant, independent technology analysis, news, and reviews community. iAfrican focuses mainly on technology content relating to Africa, curated by a team that believes strongly that African tech stories are best narrated and shared by those in the trenches working daily in the technology industry on the continent. To stay abreast of leading insights, analysis, and opinions on tech in Africa, join over 6,600 subscribers to iAfrican's weekly newsletter at iAfrican.com slash subscribe. That's iAfrican with a K. Now this week, I'll be chatting to Brandon Becker, who is Managing Director for Africa and the Middle East at email security firm Mimecast. Prior to joining Mimecast in 2008, Brandon spent 10 years within the Dimension Data Group, serving in executive positions at both Internet Solutions and Dimension Data. At Mimecast, however, Brandon's credited for his significant contribution to the company's continued growth into a serious international player within email security management. This is African Tech Conversations. Can you swim? Yeah, I can swim. Been swimming a long time. And what's your favorite stroke? I'd say freestyle. It's the fastest one. How old were you when you first learned to swim? I think I was about four, Andile. Do you remember who taught you? Uh, swimming lessons. What, the school ones or the ones that happen after school or that kind of thing? Were you, were you driven there? Were you walked there? Do you remember her name, his name? It was, a, it was a lady teacher. My mom took me there. It was definitely an extramural thing, so it wasn't at our school. But I was obviously very proud to learn how to swim uh, quite early when I was pretty young. Where did that happen? Was it Joburg, Cape Town? Do you remember anything unique about the swimming pool, the neighborhood? Okay, I can't remember exactly where it was, but it would have definitely been in the southern suburbs of Cape Town, which is where I grew up. And so is that where you spent most of your early school years? Spent, I would say, 40 years of my life in Cape Town. So I was, I was born there. I was raised there. I was schooled there. I went to university there. And I worked there right up until three years ago when I relocated up to Johannesburg. Back to the swimming thing. Uh, have you ever nearly drowned? You obviously learned very young. Maybe not. Do you ever have a, a near drowning experience? Uh, funny you ask that because I was watching a TED talk on Sunday where someone was explaining like a, a near drowning experience and, and, and how absolutely petrifying it is and terrifying it is. And funny enough, I do remember almost drowning once and it was one of my, my late father's friends was playing around with me in the pool and dunking me or whatever you call it and, and sitting on top of me and uh, I remember feeling like this I'm really trapped here and, and, and I potentially could be drowning. Other than that, I think I've always been in control. Having said that, I've done lots of interesting things like river rafting and swimming in big waves and surfing, etc. So I've been fearful, I think, of water from time to time, but that would be the only time I feel I came potentially close to drowning. Of course, if you ask that person whether I was close to drowning, they would say no, but um, I felt that I was, certainly. Of course, they were being the irresponsible adult, right? So. <laughs> That probably had a few beers. I can't recall exactly. I was quite young, but I just remember suffocating a little bit. It wasn't a pleasant feeling. Well, then what's the closest you've come to drowning in your professional career? Using drowning as a metaphor, of course. <laughs> wow. Probably quite a few times, um, but certainly only at Mimecast. So my previous roles uh, in professional life have been somewhat less frantic, I would say. I joined Mimecast you know, quite some time ago, and... Um, 
it's always been a business about growing as fast as possible. Uh, we have a massive market opportunity and, and a very long runway. We're always really impatient to, to activate as much of that runway as possible. So we're impatient because we believe we have a very pervasive solution and technology that can help all businesses. So there's constantly a lot going on. And I would say from time to time, particularly at year ends, I would say when we, we're chasing the numbers hard, I do feel a little bit like I'm about to drown. Having said that, though, it's always a really exciting time at Mimecast. Can you pinpoint one experience that you could liken to that absolutely petrifying experience you described with that ridiculous drunkard <laughs> sitting on your head underwater, you know? A, a specific experience, perhaps, in your professional career. A specific year when the year end just kicked your butt or you just thought maybe this wasn't going to work out? or Yeah, I can't think of anyone when I felt that we probably weren't going to prevail or anything like that. But I do remember we've had lots of disappointments along the way and, and lots of times where we've, we've put in masses of amounts of effort only to be really disappointed. But one particular incident I do recall, which does have a happy ending, we signed up a very large financial services organization in Santon here and we were very chuffed and uh, broadcast the fact to everybody uh, that wanted to listen and during the implementation phase things went a little bit wrong and they ended up cancelling the service with us and that was a big pull to swallow because that was a transformational opportunity and deal for us Um, and it was really really disappointing and I just remember being really down about that. Having said that, some six or so years later, we re-signed them up. They gave us another bite of the cherry and I'm very happy to say that they're very happy customers today. Let's talk about things you did professionally leading up to your current role at Mimecast. You you spent most of your early years in Cape Town, studied at Stellenbosch, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, what did you choose to study there? I didn't choose what to study. I had an aptitude test choose for me because I didn't know what I wanted to do like a lot of uh, young folk finishing off school. What I did know I wanted to do was to go to Stellenbosch and play rugby, which I did, but I obviously needed to study something. So I went to an aptitude test and the aptitude test said that I'd be a good lawyer. So I enrolled for a, a law degree. I finished my undergrad degree and then from there went to go and play rugby overseas and that was right at the start of rugby becoming professional so my first job per se was to play semi-professional and then professional rugby which I really enjoyed obviously but I quite quickly also realized that it wasn't going to be a perpetual career opportunity and that I probably wasn't good enough to get to the top so I started thinking about what I really wanted to do and I do have a history in my family of quite successful IT careers and my father had always suggested that I would do quite well in an IT career in sort of sales and sales management. So I thought, well, seeing although that's quite close to the bone, I'll give that a bash. And I went for an interview at a a few companies, uh, one of them being Dimension Data in its infancy. And I got offered a role there as an account manager which is like, a, I guess, a sales executive, if you like. And that was my first job in IT. I did a number of jobs at uh, the Dimension Data Group and lasted for 10 years there. At that point in time, after 10 good years, I moved across to join my friend who had started Mimecast, uh, Peter Bauer. He's one of the founders and the CEO. So I'm, I moved across to Mimecast, still as a, a fledgling software-as-a-service business, just trying to survive before Thrive. And my role there was to be the sales director for the business uh, for South Africa and also to start the business in in Cape Town, which I did. And uh, following 
five or so years of, of doing that, I moved into the managing director position here at Mountcast. And so how much of what you've just described, you know, from Stellenbosch, studying law, I read somewhere that you, you studied for a diploma in sports science at London Business School. How much of this stuff is happening to you as opposed to you picking it out for yourself? How much of this is enjoyable for you versus survival? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I'm lucky. I've, I've enjoyed every job I've ever had. So I think I've probably chosen the jobs. Essentially, I've only worked for two companies in my whole life. It's very few for someone my age at 42. I would say I've chosen those opportunities. I certainly chose to work at Mimecast. It was something that was being discussed way before I actually made the decision to move to Mimecast. And then, as I mentioned, when I first went into the IT arena, I had a couple of opportunities. I was successful in all the interviews that I partook in and then I had the opportunity I guess to choose Dimension Data and I'm glad I did because it was really good timing and it was a fantastic company, a great uh, place to learn your trade in, in, in the IT arena in South Africa and it's a company that's, that wins and I like to win too and, and I think the culture was a good match. I think that's uh, fairly similar also to the culture at Mimecast. We, we're a business that uh, is all about uh, getting good results and we believe that that creates opportunities for our people to advance. Um, but I still love it here. I've been here for over eight years now and every day is still exciting. So I guess I've pretty much chosen where I've wanted to be up until now. Uh, and that, that's a good place to be. And as a non-tech person making an intentional move into tech, what has have been some of the rude awakenings for the lawyer in you that didn't know that tech worked this way or that way? What's been quite interesting is that tech is obviously very rapidly evolving. So I think when you make the decision to get into tech, make sure that you're making the right decision that this company you're working for has longevity. Because one thing I've certainly seen over my circa 18 years in technology is that a lot of companies just don't survive and value propositions become outdated and technology becomes outdated and new disruptive players come into the market. So I think it's very important for someone that makes the decision to go into tech that they very clearly understand the value proposition of the business that they're joining, the longevity of that business that they're joining, the expectations of working for that business that they're joining. More so than other industries that I'm aware of, it takes a very thorough decision to plot your career with, within the IT environment. Isn't a lot of that rolling the dice, as it were? Can you really sort of spot a winner as early as perhaps you did in Dimension Data? What did you see when you first hopped on the Dimension Data ship? What did you see then that, looking back, you probably identified, maybe didn't realize you were seeing or identifying instinctively? That's also an interesting question. I have a very strong gut instinct. When it comes to making really big decisions in my life, I'm very thorough. You know, in smaller decisions, perhaps not as thorough, and I can be impulsive. But when it comes to things like careers or friendships or, or things like that, I, I'm quite thorough. So I certainly did a lot of homework on, on the business. I had actually a few friends as well as uh, people that I respected evaluate Mimecast as a business and give me their interpretations and feedback of what they thought uh, the opportunity presented. Dimension Data was a little bit different because it was becoming a, a fairly strong brand even back then at the end of 1997 when I made the decision to join them. Being thorough is just around asking lots of questions and not just getting feedback yourself 
from from those questions that you asked, but also asking opinions of people that you know are close to you or that care about you. And by asking those questions, you probably get quite transparent and honest feedback. Uh, and then ultimately, it is up to you to make the decision. And not everyone does make good decisions. I mean, one thing I find quite interesting is interviewing a hell of a lot of people to join Mimecast is quite regularly come across very good people that have just made a host of bad decisions. And albeit it's not your your role to guide them on, on making good decisions, it's sometimes quite disappointing when you see this talent um, and really good people that have just made a number of bad decisions back to back. And I think quite often bad decisions can be associated with not buying into the story and the roadmap of a business, but rather being excited by the fact that you may be getting a nice high salary. They may have offices in Santon. You might get a lot of leave days, whatever that may be. I think it's really important to focus on the business and the proposition and the roadmap in making your decision rather than the shorter term fixes, if you like, like you know salaries and some of the benefits and so on. Is that your training as a lawyer that you know informs your ability to ask the right questions and keep asking questions till you get the right answers? How much of what you spent, what three, four years studying at Stellenbosch, you actually used and and held you in good stead? You know, even if you decided to do something totally different. Yeah, so I think the way I see it is, I've always been very competitive, um, and I've always played in competitive sports teams. And one thing I've learned is that you want to go to the best club and try and get into that first team. You don't want to go to the worst club and try and get into the first team because you know, you're know you going to be far more successful going to the best companies and then trying to climb the ladder in, the, in, in those best companies. So how I look at it is I want to go to companies that I have a really strong sense that they're going to be successful and that I can be successful within those businesses. So um, that's how I like to evaluate. So if I were to move from Mimecast into another business, I need to be secure and have done enough homework to be confident, rather, that that new opportunity in that business can be very, very successful. And it may be in different stages of its success. So it may be in its infancy and just has a really good chance of success, or it may have had some success already and you want to take it to the next level. But I want to be in a business and in an environment where people work damn hard to, to get great results and, and to be successful um, and to win. And, and that's how I like to orientate um, around decisions I make around the businesses or the teams that I, I may join. So for example, if I was going to, I'm quite into my, my squash and I play competitively. Uh, now again, I gave it a long break, but I'm looking at getting back into that and I'm now making a decision on what club I want to join and I want to join a club that wins and a club that's successful um, because I like to be around winners and, and successful people and to learn from them and, and hopefully also add value to them. Talking about teams, you joined Peter Bauer and Neil Murray and you mentioned that Peter's a friend and what was the context for you guys getting together and what did you see in them as, you know, given what you just described, as potential teammates for success? I mean, you obviously brought a lot to the table, as we'll talk about it in a bit, but what did you see in them as founders of the startup, essentially? So I hadn't met uh, Neil Murray, albeit that I'd I'd heard of him by reputation, but I was at school with Peter, so we go a long way back, right back to, I think, the age of 14 when he uh, came from the Eastern Cape to, to the school that I was at. And we knew each other right from those days. So there's also that sense of um, trust and stability in the whole thing. I know what his character's like. I know that he's a winner. 
um, and he's a guy that I would back. Having said that, I had a really good career at Dimension Data, and at the point in time when he first approached me to to look at potentially joining Mimecast, I felt that it was still too risky. You know, I had built up a, a career already and had some success, and I needed to know that the timing was right. So I followed Mimecast closely over that period of around a year when I felt that I was ready to take the plunge and also that Mimecast was ready to be successful so that some of the risk was, was, was mitigated for me. It was a it was a good time to, to join up. Having said that it's been it's been a hell of a hard a hard slog, but in times like this when we just finished a half year and we reflect, um, we've had tremendous success and uh, I'm very glad that uh, I trusted my decision making and I made a really good decision at that time. Tell me about Mimecast. What is your business model and how do you make money? Okay, we essentially have built a software as a service cloud platform which is our own proprietary software built from the ground up to be multi-tenanted. So we own the IP, we have a large software development team, and we essentially make money by selling a subscription service to the market. So in essence, businesses pay to use our platform. So they don't buy any hardware from us, they don't buy any software from us, they buy a service from us. So the margins are inherently high because it's our IP. Having said that, we're still continuously developing the platform to provide more feature and functionality, and with that also uh, derive more revenue from our customers. But we can only get to that point if our customers are happy f- with the service that we offer, if we're meeting their needs, if we're easy to do business with. So that would be the revenue model. Fortunately for us, we have a business that has a almost infinite runway, so we size our market by the size of the number of Microsoft Exchange users globally, um, and that could be on-premise, cloud, Office 365. So therefore, I guess we are in a race against time to get as many of those uh, users onto our service as possible. And we've seen that once they're on our service, they stay on our service, and generally they're really happy with the service that we deliver. And everything's cloud-based? Yes, everything's cloud-based. Essentially, it's just a platform, so it's one thing but it's a multifaceted platform. So we don't have multiple disparate or or, or separate products. Uh, We just have uh, a a single platform that you can um, get access to in various flavors and forms, uh, depending on what your business requirements are. Your your footprint uh, spans across 100 countries, is that correct? Yeah, it could well be. I'm not sure exactly how many, but Currently, we have one office in the UK, which is still currently our our head office, although that may change. It's also where our 150-odd developers reside. Why might that change? We see the US as our biggest market opportunity. With that, our CFO, our CEO, and recently our new COO are all based in our Boston office. If you want to be a really successful global software company, you have to have a big presence in the U.S., and uh, we're going hammer and tongs after that market. So we have four offices in the U.S. right across the geography, so East Coast, Middle East, and Middle West, and then the West Coast. So we have an office in Boston, which is our essentially our head office, which is also the second only to Silicon Valley, um, the second biggest tech hub in the U.S. We have an office in Chicago, an office in Dallas, and then an office in San Francisco, albeit, uh, or Silicon Valley. We have two offices in South Africa, one in Johannesburg and, and one in Cape Town. 
currently have one, almost two offices in Australia, and that's Melbourne and Sydney. And yes, so potentially spanning across a hundred odd countries. And typically, our customers are countries that uh, use messaging in the English language, not exclusively, but th- that is obviously where our closest runway is and where we focus. And your website says you have over fourteen thousand five hundred users. Do you get to that number by counting every single user you have? currently on your platform? So that number you refer to is the number of customers, the number of corporate customers. We have about 14,500 corporate customers. Users, we have over 4 million users, um, which we fairly recently went over. Always got to check in on these stats because we're growing pretty quickly. And yes, we're able to, through our, our monitoring systems, get a clear view on how many customers we have as well as how many users we have um, dynamically at any point in time. We're taking a quick break to remind you that this episode of African Tech Conversations is brought to you courtesy of iAfrican.com. Now, iAfrican is Africa's most vibrant and independent technology analysis, news, and reviews community. They focus mainly on technology content relating to Africa, curated by a team that believes strongly that African tech stories are best narrated and shared by those in the trenches, those who are working daily in the technology industry on the continent. To stay abreast of leading insights, analysis, and opinions on tech in Africa, join over 6,600 subscribers to iAfrican's weekly newsletter at iAfrican.com slash subscribe. That's iAfrican with a K. Now back to the conversation. And have you seen a, a drop in demand for your service given widespread adoption of cloud services like Google Apps for Business by enterprises? Fortunately not. We've just closed out a quarter now, which has been the most successful one we've ever had. So despite some of the challenges in the economy, um, we're growing really well. And in fact, we're seeing a greater demand for our services. And there are many reasons for that, if you like, I can go through them. To talk us through that, let's, let's, maybe you can tell me a little bit about who your biggest competitors are globally and then specifically on the regions that you, do, you manage directly, so Africa and the Middle East. So firstly, I would think that cloud is is becoming far more mainstream and far safer, if you like. So we've got a mature service. We've been in the cloud for 12 years. So that gives us a hell of a lot of credibility. The onset of Office 365 has created a huge opportunity for us. So businesses are looking at taking their on-premise email environments into Microsoft's cloud. With that, uh, there are a whole bunch of new risks and considerations and uh, we building our platform to augment that position. So as businesses start considering Office 365, where Office 365 has some, some shortfalls, uh, we plug those gaps, uh, we augment uh, 365, and we're also the plan B for 365. 365 does go down. It's had quite a few outages of late, and we believe that MimeCost plus Office 365 would be the perfect resilient, redundant, and compliant uh, messaging or platforms, combinations. We do have competitors in various flavors um, globally. The biggest ones would be the likes of Symantec, Proofpoint, McAfee, all quite large uh, American software companies. But in terms of apples for apples comparison, I'm not aware of any that are apples for apples per se, so I think we have quite a few differentiators that make us unique. I think the other thing that's giving us an advantage is that we're not looking to take Office 365 head-on, but rather to augment Office 365 
and uh, that's a somewhat different stance to some of our competitors, and it seems to be working really well in our favor. Does it keep you up at night thinking that perhaps that might be the wrong bet <laughs> long term? You're betting on a future that Microsoft is a big part of. How much of that do you factor in your decision making as a team here at Microsoft? A lot of the leaders in the business, that has kept them up at night. Um, I'm not a developer or technologist per se, but certainly in terms of understanding the the strategy of businesses and and where the high-level risks are with, with, with 365 and, and some of the other technology and solutions out there, I've always bought into our story. I think our story is a very compelling one. So I haven't been kept it up at night. I guess my excitement for what we're doing and how we augment 365 and what our potential is does override some of the, the fear and the fear of loss that, that, that one may have. Having said that, you know, I am an optimist um, as far as my cost is concerned and our future is concerned. Uh, and there would be some that, that have been kept at, up at night around some of those considerations. So slightly biased then. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk Africa specifically now. As a region and now sp- specific parts of Africa would be uh, what you're directly responsible for. Which parts of Africa deliver the most revenue for you as a business? And which ones are the fastest growing? We're responsible in this office for South Africa, which is obviously our our large prevailing market, um, but then also for Africa and the Middle East, in fact. We've had a fairly spray gun approach up until now, which, surprise, surprise, hasn't yielded really good results. And we're heading towards a more, uh, certainly a more focused approach. So what we're looking at now is predominantly uh, three regions. Um, and, and, and this is how we sort of uh, look at these regions. The first one would be neighboring countries of South Africa that have similar, if you like, economies to South Africa and therefore are fairly similar in terms of how business is conducted. So that would be countries like Namibia and Botswana and Lesotho will be that really small, Mozambique, Zimbabwe. And even then more specifically there, Namibia and Botswana is where we see the best growth. After that, we look at East Africa, and there we're looking at Kenya basically only. We do have a little bit of business in Tanzania as well, but Kenya is an IT hub, and cloud is being embraced there. The internet is strong there, et cetera, et cetera, and that represents a good opportunity. We've also got good partners in that in that region. And then the other is um, specifically in the Middle East for now, Dubai, another interesting one we're starting to look at since sanctions have been lifted of them from the U.S. is is Iran. That's got a really good, um, highly educated uh, workforce. It's got a large population. We like large populations because we charge on a subscription per person basis. So it's no good us chasing after a country that has 500,000 people when you could look at a country like Iran that has 80 million people. And they're also very strong in terms of uh, technology. Um, And they've probably become quite strong since they've been fairly isolated from, from the rest of the world. So in a nutshell, neighboring countries, Kenya, Dubai, uh, and possibly Iran. We do have bits and pieces in in Nigeria and Ghana. Those represent good opportunities too. Having said that, they are more challenging in terms of doing business with than the other ones that I've mentioned. So for us, it's also important to try to land our story 
in regions that embrace the story rather than just swimming upstream trying to convince them that this is a good idea to support us. And does your business development process involve you know, occasional visits? Do, do you set up a team? Are you looking to harness the, the workforces of each of those regions? How do you keep it streamlined and nimble so you, could, you, know, you can act on things quickly? Yeah, that's a good question too. We only work through partners. So we have a set of partners in all of those regions that I've mentioned. Um, and quite often it's the same set of partners. So it might be businesses like a, a business connection and a dimension data and an MTN that have offices in those regions. So we, we, we trade through partners. It's a confined set of partners. So we're not just, again, spray gunning the territory. We're trying to get these partners enabled so they can build out pipelines and have success. So it's around about two to four partners per region. And typically those are the same partners even among those different regions. Yeah, and then the other thing we do obviously is we have a pretty structured travel schedule. So we like to be in any region at least once every three months. So we'd be going to Gaborone once every three months. We'll be going to Vintok once every three months. We'll be going to Nairobi once every three months. We'll be going to Dubai once every three months. And having it in a, in a structured way uh, we feel you know works better. It's easier to control the costs and the, and, and I guess the the returns. But also the customers and prospects and partners get used to that cadence, so they can sort of anticipate you coming and get your diary nice and full and productive and so on. What would you say is your most important source of information that informs your sense of potential in a in a market that you are about to enter? Yeah, so that's a that's a great question and and one we're still trying to get our heads around. There are a number of information sources. So the one would be the partners in those regions. The other would be where are Microsoft strong as an email platform because that's where we want to be. Um, you have analyst reports, you have economic reports. Uh, so, so there's various data, and I guess we're still trying to figure out what is the most relevant data for us. So we have access to these data sources, but we're not 100% sure what the best ones are. But typically, it would be where the Internet is strong, is vital, because we're a cloud service, and also where Microsoft has built up a strong brand um, because we're typically augmenting uh, their service. No, now, in terms of research and development in your field, in terms of what Mimecast does, uh, what's what's the current space race that you and your competitors are running or part of? At the, you know, what's the next big thing, and will email be here in the next five years? Yeah. So the answer to the first question is yes, email will definitely be here in the next five years. Email is growing still really robustly. No worries on on that side of things for sure. Um, and I think a, a really good example of that would be Office 365, and it's currently the fastest-growing product Microsoft have ever had, and that essentially is um, an email, a cloud email platform. So email's here to stay. That box is, is, is ticked. I can't talk about 20 years' time, but certainly uh, 5 to 10 years, it, it, it's, it's as solid as a rock. The opportunities center around certainly big data and making data more useful for business. That's a big opportunity, and that's an opportunity that we are in. 
And the other one is around all the risks and threats that are out there today. So those are growing exponentially, and we're also in that game. You know, if you had to box us, which is quite a difficult thing to do because we also have to, you know, relate our story back into the market, but we're somewhere a combination of, you know, making email safer and more useful for business and also, um, I guess, in the cybersecurity space. And we're constantly evolving and growing our security product set. Interesting you say that because 2015 may well be remembered as the year of hacktivism. The Ashley Madison debacle comes to mind, the hacking team scandal, um, and several other governments and corporate interests being targeted. Are you then perhaps not a data business that sort of manages email, that happens to manage email, the same way maybe McDonald's is a property business that just happens to sell burgers? That's also an interesting question because we, we're deliberating over that ourselves, but I would say that we're a security business. That's certainly how we position ourselves now. In the past, we may have positioned ourselves as, as an email management business, so focusing on the risks around email and managing those, um, the complexity of, of, of running email and, and making email more simple to run, and I guess also through that, um, reducing the costs of running email. So th those are the challenges we're addressing, and now I would say we're far more around making your email data safer for your business. So you neatly sidestepped the whole data play uh, question I had, which is, which I suppose would put you head to head with the, the Facebooks of this world, which are pretty much taking over the planet at the moment. H how do you see yourselves in the context of a world that's you know, increasingly becoming bluer and bluer by the day? And uh, also, what do you make of all the numbers regarding uh, you know, Africa leading the world in terms of mobile penetration and where you see your service and all that? You could refer to us as a data business. Um, statistics that we have uh, sort of look at probably around 85% of all the information an individual has at some point, in, and that's personal information as well as you know, corporate information, will traverse the email environment, and, and we're, uh, we're storing that email. So we have a huge amount of data sort of residing within our service, and just like a bank provides services back to, to, to people and businesses that, that store money with it, you store your data with us and we'll provide you a set of services back to make that data more useful to you. So um, we absolutely could perceive ourselves to, to be a data business. In terms of the mobile penetration into, into Africa, we, we obviously see a good opportunity for that. We're very big into end-user enablement I guess just enhancing the, the user experience. So if your corporate business has Mimecast implemented within the business to augment your, your email platform, all the services are available on your mobile device. So you can search your, your archived email on your mobile device. There are enhanced layers of security on your mobile device and various other cool functionality options to make users more productive that where businesses have invested in Mimecast. Back to you personally now, how many businesses are you involved with at the moment in any sort of capacity? And um, do you do any angel investing at all? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm fully invested in Mimecast, so I'm a shareholder uh, in this business. Um, for me, I can't see a better place to be invested, so I'm probably um, quite heavily weighted into this business. I don't have any active involvement in any other businesses, but I do have uh, a few investments. 
So talk me through the process, you know, Mamcast went through being a startup essentially in securing venture capital and where you are now as a business in terms of, you know, needing to secure more list maybe. Where are you at in terms of that as a, as a, as a business? We started our journey, you know, 13 odd years ago. You know, in terms of funding, we were funded by a set of angel investors, and and how that works is it's really friends and associates of the founders, I guess. So that's how we raise capital. It's a cheap way to raise capital. It's well distributed, so shareholders don't get you know voting rights uh, on the board and so on. So the founders still run the company. So that was a really effective way initially, um, and we did that for quite some time, and then have had three series of VC funding. So we do have VC investment, um, but the business is still essentially run by the founders, angel investors, and then VCs uh, with the funders uh, retaining control of the company. And are those funders smiling at the moment? Well, who knows, but we are busy with various options at the moment in terms of uh, where to take the business. Uh, the business is uh, really profitable now, so from a pure standpoint of uh, a capital requirement, that is somewhat limited. Having said that, um, you know, capital does enable you to grow faster, and for us, uh, growth is probably the most important metric. Now, in our sister podcast, the African Tech Roundup, we've often discussed what's necessary for developing relevant and commercially successful products for Africa. You, you know, Mimecast is obviously... Uh, a very successful example of, of you know a business that's that's done that we've we've discussed though the role of harnessing diversity to ensure that continued success now failures like the recent demise of the altic node could be cited as what happens when you you don't quite pay attention to exactly what the market needs or you know you know give enough thought to moving into a new market and doing it successfully so what sort of efforts are you making as the MD of, of Mimecast, um, you know, given the regions you, you cover in Africa and the Middle East, um, to make sure that you don't fall into that same trap as you roll out into, the, into new markets? The position I find myself in now would be different to a few years back in that um, the service is a proven service across any geography. So if a business feels that email is critical to the running of that business, which it just about is in every business, then Mimecast has a, a very relevant story to tell. And then I think with the onset of you know some of the, the threats and risks around information management and email, that just um, amplifies our story, as well as, of course, the onset of um, Office 365. So I think we're in a, a better position uh, than we have been. So, And I think what's also important in terms of our strategy and its relevance, we don't play a major role in that from uh, this region. So our role really is to grow our customer base to make sure that that customer base is, is really happy and really successful and to support that customer base. So we have all the functions of a traditional business, but we don't develop the software and the strategy in country. We execute on it. Let me take you back to something I read about you, uh, a massive deal with Transnet that you landed for Mimecast that would apparently forever change the, the, the face of the business and I think cemented your partnership with its founders, with the founders of the business, etc. Uh, I imagine you are in a position, though, to, to send intelligence back to the US or the UK, wherever it is, explaining what it is this market needs or might need differently to, to more developed markets and that kind of thing. Do you ever find yourself in a, in a position to do that? Yeah, what I love about this business is we... 
we hold a lot of records within the Mimecast business. So we're still extremely innovative. Um, we have the highest levels of, of customer um, experience index scores, which essentially is how your customers experience you. We also have the largest customers globally. So typically our business is, is built on SME and mid-market business. This is from a global and strategic perspective. Having said that, in South Africa, we have some of the very largest businesses on our service and experience our service in a in a very good way. So we do like to pioneer and and test the boundaries. Um, and certainly, the other the other regions um, are very appreciative of that and learn from that. Um, so we absolutely play our role. And Transnet was a, excuse the pun, a very transformational deal. So at that point in time, I think we may have been about possibly about 10,000 users globally on our platform. We didn't have an American office at that point in time, but our global business was worth 10,000 users and we closed in a single deal at an additional 16,500 users. So we more than doubled our business in a single deal. It's downhill from here. I'm sure you'll be happy to hear. How long have you been married? Been married since November 2006, so that would be heading for nine years. Is she happy? I hope so. Do you guys have kids yet? or? I have two young girls. The one is four and the other one is seven. Yeah, and they're a very important part of my life. Any advice for me, given I've only been married, uh, what, uh, just just over a year and a half now? Yeah, I don't know how old you are and what your circumstances are, but I would say get cracking and have children. Moving on. Moving swiftly along. <laughs> All right, then. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Well, I should give up both. You should, actually. I'm caffeine-free for some years now. Anyway, beef or chicken? Beef, but should be more chicken. That's true. Um, that's also true. Uh, sunrise or sunset? Both. Uh, Asian food or continental? Asian, for sure. Yeah, uh, you spot on with that one. Thai. I'm hoping Thai. Yeah, Thai. Thai. Chinese, but yeah, Thai's good. Thai's awesome. And what are you reading right now? The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Only because I was told to read that for an EXCO meeting that I'm heading towards. But um, Were they hinting? <laughs> yeah, no, hopefully not. But having said that, I've actually read the book before. And uh, it's a it's a fascinating read. And it... It talks about um, how teamwork is is the ultimate success factor, um, more so than you know finance, technology, great ideas, etc. And it just talks about how powerful it is having everyone uh, rowing in the same direction and and the sort of exponential gains you can get from that. So yeah, I'm really enjoying it. Very practical as well. And I've I've seen some stuff you've written on that blogs and so on. So it's probably something you were passionate about anyway, teamwork and and putting together good teams and that kind of thing. Yeah, I used to read a, a lot of um, business books and, uh, and developmental books and so on. I think I, I read far less of them now. I prefer to watch things like TED Talks, which inspire me, and also find there's just so much out there that you can start, um, I guess, getting a little bit confused around some of your, your theories on things and, and, and what you believe in. Having said that, I have made a, a resolution with myself that I am going to start reading a little bit more again, and I've really enjoyed this book. But I do, I'm do i a pretty avid reader, so I, I get through quite a lot of stuff. Cool. And for our final question, is there a question perhaps I haven't asked that you wished I had? You've put me on the spot here. Um, you know, what I do like talking about with this 
team that we have in this business is the the high performance culture even more prolific than the great technology that we have is our fantastic culture it's a family type environment but also an environment where we have high expectations of each other and uh, we like to achieve amazing things together and we work really hard at, at the input the analogy we like to use here is that sports teams prepare practice eat right train right right and this takes up a huge amount of time, and then they go and compete for a very short amount of time. And the paradox in business is that you spend all this time competing day in, day out, but you're not preparing, you're not practicing, you're not learning, you know, you're not eating right, sleeping right, and all those kinds of things. So we place a lot of emphasis on those inputs. And if you do that and trust in that, the results actually take care of themselves. Do you think that's something that perhaps eludes the millennial generation that's entering the workforce at the moment? Uh, or do you, do you find that uh, a, a way of life or a philosophy they're embracing? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think some of the youth in the workforce, they, they just have incredible access to information and theories and, and all of that kind of stuff in relation to perhaps when I and a lot of my, my, my teammates were a little younger. And with that, I think they, they tend to try and find a lot of shortcuts and wing it. And that's fine, but there are no shortcuts to, to leading a, a structured, disciplined, and, and healthy life. Well, Brandon Becker, thank you very much for your time. It's been a blast. Thank you very much. Indeed, I've enjoyed it. Once again, many thanks to iAfrican.com for sponsoring this episode of African Tech Conversations. Now remember to stay abreast of leading insights, analysis, and opinions on Tech in Africa. Join over 6,600 subscribers to iAfrican's weekly newsletter at iAfrican.com slash subscribe. That's iAfrican with a K. Thank you for listening to African Tech Conversations.